You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We have been in crisis mode, many of us, for more than a year now. And at long last, many of us are beginning to feel like we're able to shift out of crisis mode to some degree. More people are returning to worship. More uh, stores and businesses are returning to sort of normal pre-pandemic practices, at least uh, in many places. That's not necessarily the case in every place, but in many places. We feel like we're coming out on the other side of the crisis. Many of you have had conversations with me and with other others in the church lately where we're, we feel some optimism and we feel some excitement and it's kind of a, a light at the end of the tunnel moment. I was listening to a podcast recently on church leadership. I like to run in the mornings. A lot of times while I'm exercising, I'll listen to podcasts on either theology or church leadership or or the Bible and things like that. And as I was listening to one, they were discussing this movement from crisis mode to kind of what does it look like to come out of the crisis? What does it look like to proceed back into maybe not old normal, but new normal? Because after all, the world has changed, and we all know that, and it's never going to be the same again. And the church has changed, and we all know that, and that will never be the same again. And so the question was, between these kind of church consultant guru leadership guys, the question was, how do we, how do we re-engage and how do we help pastors and how do we help congregations and how do we help church staffs and how do we help leadership? How do we help people re-engage in whatever the mission looks like post-pandemic, after COVID? How do we resume? Because a lot is different than it was. In many churches all over the country, they said this, Church attendance is about 30 to 40% lower than it was in person a year and a half ago. Many, many churches have resumed in-person worship, but for some it's been longer, some it's been less time, but nevertheless, the percentages are 50, 60, sometimes 70% at the most of what they were before the pandemic. I also learned listening to these guys talk about church leadership that a lot of churches are experiencing people are, are coming back to worship and they're feeling more comfortable to the, with that and for a variety of reasons. But nevertheless, lots and lots and lots of churches are having difficulty re-engaging worshipers in various serving opportunities. So a lot of people may be coming back to church, but a lot of churches are having people get involved in hospitality ministries. People may be coming back to church, but maybe there aren't as many people who are ready to lead a small group as there were 15, 16 months ago. People are coming back to church, but the servant, the many people it takes to lead as like a children's ministry, Sunday school, a lot of those folks haven't returned yet, and I'm so grateful that we're able to honor our Sunday school teachers this morning and give thanks for your eagerness to be with the students on Sunday morning. It is a joy to me as your pastor uh, to see your faithfulness in that, so thank you. 
But churches all over the country and really all over the world are asking these kinds of questions. How do we re-engage? We've, we've, we've had a crisis, a global crisis. We feel like we're coming through the crisis and kind of emerging on the other side. But what does it look to re-engage? What does it look like to re-engage worship? What does it look like to re-engage our mission? What does it look like to re-engage our identity as a people of hope? How do we do that? What does it feel like? Will the old methods work? Most churches are finding out the answer to that question is, guess what? No. The methods we used 18 months ago don't work today for recruiting and deploying volunteers, servants in the kingdom of God. So what does it look like? How do churches come to life after a crisis? The good news is, We're not the first ones to ask that question. Believe it or not, we're not the first time the people of God have had a crisis. And I'm not talking just little crises and individual churches here and there. I'm talking major crises that impacted nations, multiple nations, even the world. Haggai is written to a group of Hebrew people after the most severe crisis in the history of their nation to that point. They're coming through the crisis. They're beginning to emerge on the other side of that crisis. And they are asking the question, well, the leaders are asking the question, how do we re-engage? How do we come back? How do we resume worship? The temple isn't there. The building is gone. How do you offer sacrifices the way God requires in a temple that doesn't exist? How do we re-engage worshipers? How do we re-engage the priestly service? How do we re-engage people in the ministries and in the actions and in the commandments and in the behavior and in the observation of the worship of the one God? who made heaven and earth, and who has rescued us from Egypt, and who has brought us to himself, and who has made covenant with us. How do we re-engage? That is the question in these two chapters, this short book of Haggai. 520 years before Jesus was born, Haggai wrote these words. And his question was addressed to a people in disarray. They had lost their identity as a worshiping people. They were worried about their crops. They were worried about how long the favor of the foreign nations who had made captives of them would last. They had all these pressures. Their world was different. It was never going back. Everything had changed. It had changed fundamentally. And Haggai is called by God to go to that group of people who are marked by fear and apathy and other things and call them to be the people of God. What does that look like? They had to reckon with a certain reality. They had to reckon with the reality that if they were going to re-engage their identity as God's people, that that begins in one place. It begins in the place of worship. 
they had to discover, they had to wrestle with, they had to embrace this central reality that they were not living into their identity of the people of God if they didn't worship God the way He wanted to be worshipped. They had to learn they couldn't just make up new rhythms for worship. They had to worship God the way He called for worship. And that means the temple had to be rebuilt. Talk more about that in a minute. For now, we'll settle in on this dynamic. They had to learn this lesson. I think we need to learn it too. That worship is more than what we do. It's not just an activity in which we engage. Worship is more than what we do. It defines who we are. It's not just like, hey, I got some time. I think I'll go worship God. It's this is central to my identity as a human being. I'm not someone who worships. I am a worshiper. And if I'm not worshiping the one God who made heaven and earth and called me to be a part of his people, I'll be worshiping another one, a false one. And that's what Haggai has to help the Hebrew people after their time in exile discover. Now there's some background that we need to deal with here. Probably the most famous, or one of the top three most famous kings from the Old Testament who wasn't an Israelite or Hebrew is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Can you spell that? If so, catch me afterwards and we'll have a prize for you. Or at least some good reputation. Nebuchadnezzar was king of the Babylonians. 598 years before Jesus was born, he brought his army and besieged Jerusalem. He deported many of the leaders. He put a guy named Zedekiah on the throne who was really supposed to be kind of a puppet king. Thing is, Zedekiah didn't really like being a puppet king, and so he kind of did his own thing. He was disloyal to his Babylonian overlord, Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar decided to make an example of him. You've heard about one official making an example of another official a little lower on the ladder of power than they are. And Nebuchadnezzar decided to make an example of Zedekiah 587 years before Jesus was born. He came back to Jerusalem. And this time he didn't just take over the city and install a new king he ripped it down stone by stone by stone. He marched into the temple and destroyed it, burned it to the ground. It was devastating for the Hebrew people. Many of the Jews were killed. Others fled into, as refugees to other countries. And many were deported to Babylonia as exiles. And when we talk about the exile in the Old Testament, that's what we're talking about. 587, 586 B.C. Almost 600 years before Jesus was born. That, my friends, is what you call a crisis, isn't it? You've lived in the land, the promised land, the land your God promised to give you, the land where He's made a covenant with you. You have lived in prosperity you have lived in comfort for many years. And now, after you've worshipped in His temple and you've experienced His presence and you have abided by 
the sacrifices and the festivals, all these things, a pagan king comes in and takes your world and rips it to shreds, brings in a wrecking ball and absolutely demolishes it. You might have a sense of what that feels like after the last year. You might know what it feels like to have your world turned upside down. You might know what it feels like to not have access to a place of sacred worship, at least for a while. You might know what it feels like to not be able to engage the people you're accustomed to engaging. You might not have had to go into a foreign land, but you may feel like you're living in a very strange place. The crisis that we've experienced is not the first time the people of God have had to deal with a crisis of unspeakable proportions. In fact, their crisis in proportion to ours was probably far more significant. We're back in this space after a short time. Their space of worship was destroyed and had to be rebuilt brick by brick. So Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city, rips down the temple. Some were able to stay and live in the ruins. Others were exiled to Mesopotamia, to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar didn't last forever, though. Kings come and go. And his Babylonian kingdom was defeated by another kingdom. Anybody want to take a guess of what that is? Shout it out if you know it. The Persians, very good. I got a couple of Old Testament scholars out there. I'm proud of you. Well done. The king who followed him, the Persian king, was a man named Cyrus, another well-known king from the Old Testament, non-Hebrew. He took over Babylon in 539, and to gain some allegiance, to gain some favor amongst the people that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered, he decided, hey, you know what? These people will like me a lot more than they like the last guy if I let them go home. So he started just saying, hey, you know what? Nebuchadnezzar conquered you and brought you here. You can go. Take some resources for the journey and go rebuild your temples and rebuild your cities and just think of me as a swell guy. That's all I'm asking. And so some Jewish people were able to go back to Judea. And some of them tried to get an effort up to rebuild the temple, but it didn't last. The effort kind of fizzled. Cyrus didn't last forever either, though. Kings never do. He was killed 530 years before Jesus was born and succeeded by one of his sons who ruled for a few years. He's not one of the more famous kings, non-Hebrew, in the Old Testament. But the next guy who was able to consolidate military power and take over is. His name was Darius. And Darius is the name of the king we hear about in Haggai. Darius realized that Cyrus's plan to let conquered peoples go back to their land and rebuild their temples was a pretty good idea. And so he continued that policy. And Haggai addresses the people 
in 520, 520 years before Jesus was born, calling upon them to rebuild the temple. Now he's facing some opposition. He wants them to do some things, but there's some hesitancy. After all, the first folks back 20 years ago tried this, but it fizzled, and who's to say this won't fizzle again, and we put some resources to it, and we don't have much to show for it. There are other hindrances. Perhaps they're just a bit apathetic. Perhaps they're worried that they'll, they'll get the project going, but Darius won't last very long, and another king will come in, and he won't be quite as favorable towards them as Darius was, and as Cyrus was, and, and maybe he'll come back and tear down the temple they're rebuilding and haul them back off to another foreign land. All kinds of reasons not to rebuild the temple, right? All kinds of reasons. The trouble with that is, if you're a part of the Israel, Israelite people, if you're a part of the Judean people, right? it is thoroughly impossible for you to honor God the way He wants to be honored without a temple. Like That building was crucial. That's the place where you offer sacrifices. That's the place where you go to have your sins atoned for and forgiven. That's the way, place where you go to make it right to God. And every year, even if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you were likely going to make a pilgrimage there to worship in that place, that holy place. And when other kings earlier in their history tried to set up places of worship, temple-like structures, other places where you could maybe go and make sacrifices, it didn't go well because you only have one place. And it's important to understand that the temple for the Hebrew people was not just like a church building. Like we got counties in Alabama with more churches than people. Amen? <laughs> I've lived in a couple of them. There are churches everywhere, but there was only one temple. Why was there only one temple? There was only one temple because there's only one God. The unity of the temple, the exclusivity of the temple was connected to the exclusivity of Israel's God. If you had a lot of temples all over the place, that would suggest you have lots of gods all over the place. And it's crucial and elemental and foundational for the Hebrew people. There are how many gods? There is one. There is the Creator who loved us and made us and has made us His people. The temple has more significance than that. It is identified as the place on earth where God lives. Like, you want to meet with God, you don't go somewhere else, you go to the temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't just a place where you go from time to time to offer sacrifices because, well, that's just where you go. You go there because that's where God actually is. His presence dwelt there. Before the temple was built, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, the opening chapters of Genesis, we find a God who longs to create space where He can dwell with His people. The garden, in the beginning of Genesis, the Garden of Eden is really like a temple. In fact, 
The later temple would be decorated in sort of a way that reminded you of the garden because the garden was really the first temple. It's a place where Adam and Eve communed with God. It's a place where they honored Him as God. It's a place where they were supposed to obey Him as God. And it's the place where He set up His image bearers. If you were to go into a temple, any temple in the ancient world, except the one in Jerusalem, you would find statues. Greek, Roman, other ancient Near Eastern peoples. You find statues. And the statues are images of the God who is revered there, aren't they? And so when God puts Adam in the garden, when the Creator, the one God, puts Adam in the garden and Eve in the garden, made in His image, everyone in the ancient world knew this garden's a temple because temples are where you put images of gods. So from the start, God is creating space for His presence to dwell on this planet. Heaven on earth if you will. And he puts his image bearers, his living statues in that space to represent him, to embody his character, to honor him as God, and to declare his glory to the world. After God rescued his people from Egypt, before they came into the promised land, again he creates space to meet with them. And it's called a tabernacle. It's kind of a tent Read about it in Exodus. Uh, God gives the instructions, Moses, the instructions for building the tabernacle. You think, wow, if I got through that, I've got some stamina because there's a lot of detail and wow, you know, gold rings and purple curtains and they really cared about this and you think, I'm good, I've made it. And then when they go to make it, you hear every last detail again verbatim. And again, you realize how massively important this is because if these details are important enough to name once, they're even more important to name twice. And then after the tabernacle is constructed and it was mobile, you could break it down and move it around where the people went. After it was constructed though, what happened? The cloud, the fire that had accompanied them in the wilderness did what? It moved in. The presence of God moved into that tent in the middle of their camp because God, from start to finish, is consistently looking for a place. Not looking for a place, creating a place to dwell among, in the midst, within His people. We talk about a personal relationship with God all the time. Like, God lived in the middle of their camp. Like, think about going up to Chihuahua or Oak Mountain or somewhere, and you're camping out, and you pitch your tent, and God is in the campsite next door. Like, just get real images in your mind about this. This is not a philosophy. It's not a theology. It's not an abstract idea. If you were standing there that day, you would see the cloud that represented the presence of God descend on the tabernacle. And that's where God lived. And if you wanted to meet Him, you'd go find Moses or Aaron, and they would go and intermediate between God and you. Well, after a while, they move into the promised land. They settle Jerusalem. And it's time to build a permanent structure. Why? Because again, God is always doing what? He is always creating spaces to dwell where? In the middle of the presence of His people. Always. 
He does it in the garden. He does it in the wilderness. And He does it in the city. And if you want to get a sense of the significance of this, then you need to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And chapter 7. Where King Solomon, the son of King David, dedicates the new temple. They slaughtered a lot of bulls for this one. (laughs) And Solomon in chapter 6 prays a prayer of dedication. You've probably been to the dedication of a new facility This facility a few years ago and someone prayed to dedicate it to God. Similar kind of thing, except the fireworks were probably a little more potent when Solomon dedicated this temple. Here's what to me is one of the most stunning things in the whole Bible. As Solomon prays, he gets to a recognition that heaven and earth are unable to contain God. The created world, the finite world, as big and as vast as it is, and we're still learning about the universe, is not big enough to contain the uncreated, infinite God. And Solomon kind of gets the, just the counterintuitive nature of what he's doing. We've built this house that you want to live in, but we all know that no structure in the universe, not even the universe itself, could hold you. 2 Chronicles 6.18, but will God, Solomon prays, will God indeed reside with mortals on earth? And the answer is yes, he longs to, but it's stunning. Even the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built, the temple, the first one. Then he says this, verse 19, Regard your servant's prayer and his plea, O Lord my God, heeding the cry and the prayer that your servant prays to you. May your eyes be open day and night toward this house, the place where you promise to set your name. Now listen to this. And may you heed the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. You find in other places in the Old Testament where if people weren't in Jerusalem, they would go at, they would face Jerusalem to pray, wouldn't they? Even in exile, they would face Jerusalem to pray. Why? Because that's where God lives. Now here's the thing. Verse 21. Your servant will pray toward this place. Heed our prayers. Verse 21. And hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray, where? Toward this place. May you hear from heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Now you may think, okay, I got it. But think about the logic for a moment. Right? When I pray, I'm going to pray towards this place, this temple, this structure that we've just built and dedicated. And I want you to hear me, God, from heaven. And we hear the word heaven, and what do we think? Up here somewhere, right? Like beyond yonder or, you know, somewhere out there in an ethereal, spiritual, non-physical space. But that's not quite the logic of this passage, is it? Where does God live? Well, He lives in heaven. Wait, where does He live? Well, He lives in the temple. 
When I want to talk to God, where do I pray toward? Do I pray toward heaven or do I pray towards the temple? And the answer is yes. Why? Because the temple itself is heaven on earth. One theologian puts it this way. He says the, the temple in the Old Testament theologically is where heaven and earth overlap and interlock. Heaven isn't up there somewhere. It's just God's space. It's not in this universe. We don't really have a good way to talk about that because I don't think any of us have ever been there to my knowledge. We can't sort of like hop on a bus. We can't fly on a rocket ship or something. It's not available for us to map it out. It's just language we use to talk about the space that God inhabits as if He inhabited space to begin with. It's God's domain. And what Solomon is realizing, even if he can't quite say it explicitly, he's, he's, he's getting at this tension that God's desire from Eden to the tabernacle to this point in the history of His people, God's desire is to take heaven and earth and weave them together like a beautiful tapestry. And if you want to see what it looks like, you need to go to the temple. I'm going to pray toward heaven. I'm going to pray towards this place. I'm going to pray towards this place. You're going to hear me in heaven. Well, why don't you just pray towards heaven? Because heaven is the place. It's the building. It's the temple. God has set up shop. He has set up home. He has carved out space in this world. And it's just the start. They don't realize it yet, but that temple is the entry point. It is an infiltration point. And from there, God intends to claim every last inch that He has made on this planet. The temple, friends, <laughs> is crucial. And it's difficult for me, for us, to even imagine how central and important it was to the life of the Hebrew people. And when it goes down, God's house on earth, the place where heaven and earth overlap and interlock, has been ripped up. Now they're back, 520 years before Jesus was born. And you'd think they'd be all over this. Like, we're back, and they've sent some resources. Like, the foreign kings actually said, here's some money, go build your temple and take some of the things we took out of it, and you can just have them back and go... Get to it. Have a great time. We'll never see you again, and that's fine. Send some money back occasionally, but you know, go. And they get back, and you think they'd be all over it. After all, they have a chance after the crisis to get back to normal. But they don't get back to normal. One of the things I've heard over the last 15, 16 months is, I just want to get back to normal. And I think we all, like, if I were to say, hey, who wants to get back to normal? We would probably unanimously vote in favor of normal, I think. And yet, nothing's normal. We're not all here, for one thing. We've lost some to death. Some have moved. What is normal? Structures are not the same. The world is different. Churches are different. Our lives are different. Our jobs are different. 
We have new faces. We have different faces. We have new initiatives. We have different ministries. And we talk about normal, but I'm not sure... that's even something we can accomplish. I'm not sure it's something we should try to accomplish. Haggai is dealing with folks who had given up on getting back to normal. The trouble is, they'd also given up on their identity as the people of God. And so he calls upon them to rebuild, to lay the foundation of a new temple. Not just because the building has sentimental value. I mean, the one that had sentimental value is in, is in ruins. They've got to build another one now. And it's not going to be like the other one. And when they actually get this one constructed, the people who could remember the last one really were filled with sorrow because the new one didn't even match the glory of the old one. But the point isn't the glory of the building. The point is what the building represents. Do we care enough about our identity as the people of God to give everything we've got to worshiping Him the way He wants to be worshipped. And the temple represents that reality. They've got to realize, like worship isn't something we'll resume when we get around to it. We've been back in the land 20 years. We took a shot at the temple. We didn't, didn't turn out very well. So, you know, maybe next time, or maybe the kids can handle that, or... You know, I'm just kind of worn out after all. I've been all the way to Babylon and back, and I'm kind of tired, and I kind of want to retire, and, you know, just let somebody else handle that. And Haggai says, are you the people of God or not? Are you the people of God or not? Worship isn't just something you do if you feel like it. It's not just something you sort of, hey, you know, we'll get around to it if we can raise enough money or any of those kinds of things. It's who you are. You have been called and God has carved out space for His presence to dwell among you. And the only appropriate response to that initiation on God's part is true worship. And so he's got to jar them out of their apathy or their fear or whatever it is. And so you get, you get these rhetorical questions. Everyone loves rhetorical questions, right? Because you know the answer, and yet, you know, it's still kind of hanging out there. So Haggai calls some people together. You've got Zerubbabel, who is descended from one of the kings of Israel. So you've got a king figure. This guy goes back to David. You got Joshua, who's a priest, a king, a priest, and Haggai the prophet. So, like, there's some familiarity prophet, priest, and king. And here's what Haggai says to the authorities the priest and the governor. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. They say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house and all that it represents the place of God's presence, his worship, all these things. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai saying, is it, a time, it, is it a time for you yourselves, verse 4, to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Apparently they'd been back, some of them, for 20 years. And what did they do? Well, they built their houses. <laughs> they didn't build God's house. 
And God wants to sort of raise the issue of discontinuity and misplaced priorities. Where are your priorities? Your own dwelling place or the building that represents and embodies and signifies my dwelling place with you and your identity as worshipers? And everybody knows the answer to that. And then Haggai wants to point out that God is not unwilling to do drastic things to get their attention. Sometimes God does surprising, drastic things to get His people's attention. Consider how you have fared. You have sown much. You planted a lot of seeds, but the harvest has been pretty shabby. You eat, but you're always hungry. You clothe yourselves, but you're not warm. You earn wages, and it's like they go into a bag with holes. And if we're not careful, we could get into some sort of prosperity gospel here. We don't want to do that. It's not what's going on. It's not a, hey, if you go build the temple and worship it and write a big check to the building project, God will bless you and you know, your business will be successful. That's not what's happening here. What he's doing is he's reminding them of the covenant that he gave them in Deuteronomy. I want your best. I want you to want my best. And we're in this together. And if they falter and they're not concerned with God's best, with his glory, with his renown, with his name among the nations... He is willing to do something drastic to get their attention. Not because they can pay a certain amount and get his favor. Because he wants them to flourish. And he is unwilling to withhold a crisis if a crisis will get their attention. Let me say this again. Christians, God is not unwilling to withhold a crisis if a crisis will get our attention. God is not unwilling to withhold a crisis if the crisis gets our attention. And so Haggai comes and he says, friends, I would have thought exile would have been enough. That's a crisis. And we would think it would get our attention. Whenever things happen, when bad things happen, Haggai is not saying that God is just like this capricious, angry God who sits off in the sky somewhere and throws lightning bolts when people disobey. It's more like a loving parent who lets you experience the consequences of your disobedience. I love you, and so I'm not going to shield you from the consequences of your sin. And so they're called to live into their identity oriented around the temple as the place of worship. They are called to live into that identity. Not just to take an attitude of we'll get to it when we get to it. It's something we do. It'll be fine. But to give themselves to the worship of God in the place He has designated. And we are told in verse 12, not that they repented, not that they trusted, but that they obeyed. They did not offer God lip service. They just did what he said. And they began to lay the foundation. 
Another reason all this is important is because that building, that temple, that place of God's presence stands, stood as a pointer to someone who would come 520 years later (laughs) who would come miraculously who would be born of a woman but also born of God who would come and tabernacle among His people who would come and offer the sacrifices that God required who would come and reconcile a people to their God who would come and be the reality that the temple always pointed to. Who would come not with blood from bulls and goats and doves and whatever, goats, but with His own blood for us and our salvation. This building mattered. The worship of the people of God mattered because it has always pointed to the day when Jesus would be the place of God's presence. And our attitude to him can't be, well, this is just something we do sometimes. It defines who we are. Jesus defines who we are. The question then is, we re-engage worshiping and serving and mission. What defines us? Does the crisis define us? Do our fears define us? Do our politics define us? Does our citizenship in this world define us? Or does the worship of the one God revealed in Christ and the Spirit define us? We have to ask that question. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.